The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Now if you want to follow along in Psalm 149, we're, we're going through this sermon series on all the psalms that begin and end with hallelujah or praise the Lord. And this is the one when I was looking them all up initially and read through Psalm 149, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a hard text. And uh, today's the day. So uh, you'll see, I think, when we finish reading it as to what makes the text quite challenging. But let's give attention. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations, punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. I think we should pray together, huh? Father, help us to understand this word in its context and then how it applies to your church today. We ask for leading uh, Holy Spirit direct us to truth from your scriptures and pray that um, you'd give us your heart in these very matters. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think the, the first five verses are not too difficult to understand. It's the church jubilant. But in verse 6 to 9, at first blood, it looks like the church doing jihad. And you have to wrestle with the question, does the Bible commend jihad? And this idea of the church getting involved in a holy war. And then we recognize that this text has been used. It's a bloody text. It's a bloody history. And has often been used as a uh, justification for the Crusades. Uh, 10th, 11th, 13th centuries, and even the peasant wars during the time of Martin Luther, even though Luther condemned it, and this is in the 1520s in Germany, uh, one of his followers, Thomas Mutzer, used this very text as a reason for all of the peasants to rebel uh, against the government, and over 100,000 of them were killed. Um, and so we need to wrestle with this, this psalm and... Um, as I was sharing with somebody this week, just cycling, and I was riding with someone who doesn't, doesn't see things the way we do. He's not what we would call a believer in Christ. And um, I was telling him, the church has made a lot of mistakes. And you might be here this morning and, and think, I mean, what's the worst thing you can be accused of right now in our culture? There's a bunch of things. But the, the one that, like, would just, you're done, is, like, he's an abuser, you know, and it's like, man, if you get labeled with that, like if you're too powerful or, you know, man, you get that label on you as a pastor and you're, you're done. Anything that looks like too heavy handed, but this looks pretty, pretty heavy handed and the church and its history has done some 
horrific things, and we certainly don't commend that. And so what I was trying to say to my cycling friend is like, look, Mark Cavendish and Peter Sagan and Pogaccia, you know, they're, they're, for those of you who don't know cycling, they're like the best in the world. Um, they're great. The, the problem is there's some cycles that are terrible, that have done some stupid things and caused accidents and ride like this on the road like four wide and cars are honking their horns and, you know, people end up hating cyclists. And the problem isn't the Tour de France. The problem is these bad cyclists that are still learning how to ride. And so we'd say, we don't have a problem with Bach or, or Mozart, but these pianists that are trying to learn how to play, they make a lot of mistakes. And these Christians are making a lot of mistakes as they're learning to follow. But the problem isn't Jesus. The problem is the followers of Jesus. And so let us try to wrestle down with this text to see, yes, the church has made mistakes. But this is not uh, a, a passage at all that we see in the New Testament that we have any justification for taking up arms and doing physical battle against physical people because our battle is not against flesh and blood and all of our, um, our armor, our weaponry as the church, none of it's physical. It's all spiritual. And we'll, let's kind of wrestle through that. So in the context here, I mean, here you have this psalm that the last three verses are all about the righteous uh, executing vengeance on the nations, punishments on the people, binding kings with chains, and bringing execution, and it's honor for his godly ones. And at first blush, that's very difficult, but if you think through the, the Hebrew scriptures, first of all, God made a promise to Abraham that I will bless you. But he also promised him that those who dishonor you, I will curse. Let's not sanitize that. That is true. That's Genesis 12, 3. And many parts of the Bible, so Joshua, the whole book of Joshua is a battle book, and it's going in, and it's often referred to as the Canaanite genocide, but uh, the, Israel is going and conquering against all of these enemies of God that God's patience was done, and the iniquity of the Amorites was complete, as it's talked about in Genesis 15, and God is going to bring judgment on these people that are doing horrific things and even sacrificing and burning their children and offering them to idols. They were doing lots of wicked things, but God uses means in bringing about his judgment, and he used Israel to bring about judgment at this time. And so you have, that's most of the book of Joshua. Then you have the book of Judges, and, and lots of Judges is also where the Judges are being raised up, and you have Deborah, and you have Gideon against the Midianites, and Shamgar, and Jephthah, and Samson, and those are, those are Judges, but they're doing battles, and they're, they're winning victories. Then you have First and Second Samuel, and David fighting Goliath, and then the Philistines. Then you have First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, with kings like Abijah and Asa, Jehu, Joash, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and the whole second half of the book of Esther. And you're, you're dealing with battles against Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Philistines. And this is very true for them, that they are being used of God to protect God's people, I mean, Haman is trying to exterminate the whole Jewish race. And the whole second half of the book of Esther 
is when Queen Esther and then, and then Mordecai gets raised up and elevated to the second to the throne and they're able to defend themselves against the extermination de- decree and that's still being celebrated to this day. There's a feast that's celebrated but 75,000 people were killed as God's people, Israelites, were protecting themselves against their adversaries. So they were fighting battles we too today fight battles. They prayed in precatory psalms. They prayed these psalms of curses. There are curses in the New Testament. We'll get to that, but they're all spiritual. And we are still today the church. We talk about the church militant and the church triumphant. Like, what's the difference? It's a great presbytery question. You know, what's the church militant? What's the church triumphant? The church militant is everybody here on this earth that's part of his church. They're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's our threefold battle. And we're the church militant because we're in a fight. We're in a spiritual fight. The church triumphant are those that have gone to be with the Lord. They've passed from this life, and now they have gone from the church militant to the church triumphant where they rest from their labors. That's the church triumphant. So we would say about this text, this is how Spurgeon put it in his Treasury of David. He will says, we will not copy the chosen people in making literal war, but we will fulfill the emblem of carrying on spiritual war. Spiritual war, we praise God and contend with our corruptions. We sing joyfully and war earnestly with evil of every kind. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty. And wound with both back and edge. The word of God is all edge. Whichever way he, we turn it, it strikes deadly blows at falsehood and wickedness. And so the two-edged sword that we see in verse 6, well, we know in the New Testament, the two-edged sword is the word of God. And it's the word that's doing the spiritual war. So what we see in the New Testament is that clearly the ethics, there is, there is a, a distinction of change between who our enemies are and how we do battle. So just think about a few of these verses, and some of them are, if you look at your reflection verses, they're listed there in your bulletin. Um, But first of all, like 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 6, okay, just listen to what it says. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we see that we have, our weapon is, is different. It's not a physical weapon. We, we take up the word of God and we're taking every thought captive. Then we're told to put on the whole armor of God and it's not literal armor, right? That you may take your, ba- your stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not battle against flesh and blood What is our battle against? It's against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the church militant is fighting spiritual battles. And so what we see when we get to the New Testament is that God has suspended his judgment. His his judgment of when he returns has been suspended because this is called the, the day of salvation, as Paul calls it. He says, now is the day of salvation. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you think about Jesus' <clears throat> first sermon recorded in the Gospels, 
He picks up a scroll from Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah in the synagogue, and then he announced that today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, what, what did he say? He said that, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the, of the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says he rolled up the scroll precisely in the middle of the verse in Isaiah, and he hands it back. But where does he stop? The next part is the day of vengeance of our God, is the rest of Isaiah 61, verse 2. And so why is that left off? Because now is the age of salvation. The day of vengeance occurs when Christ returns. So for example, 2 Thessalonians 1 says, since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Wow. So when Christ returns, he will repay with affliction, those who've afflicted the saints. That's what he's saying. He will bring retribution, justice, and wrath. And you're like, well, how is that helpful to us? Well, what did you do when you, when you saw the video of the, of the Coptic Christians back some years ago, eight years ago, when they're on the beach and they're in front of the ISIL people that have a, ni- a knife to their neck and they just slaughtered 25 people right on the beach? I mean, does that bother you? Do you say, oh, the, you know, Christians are to pray these difficult prayers of these imprecatory psalms, and we'll talk a little bit about how to pray them, but it's like we are to pray for justice, but we're also praying that they would repent and that they would turn to Jesus. But there are terrible things that happen <clears throat> to God's people, and I find it interesting. You know, we read a passage like this, None of the other writers in the, in the Bible blush at this. None of them. No New Testament writer is trying to, like, cover this and explain it and, you know, do all this nuancing. Like, like, you don't see any of that in the Bible. They don't have a problem with it. It's we that have a problem with it. Because part of it is we're from a culture and context and time where the least little thing that looks like war is like, whoa, whoa, or, or abuse or anything. Like, we're, we're, we've got all of our... We're, we're so much more educated and sophisticated, so we think. But I think that the problem is, is we have to wrestle with, like, the whole of Scripture. And what is Scripture telling us? And the answer is, we, we all deserve judgment. And that God sometimes brings judgment not on the worst people first. He doesn't, like, have an order of how he brings the judgment. And he uses means. He can use people and nations... And he calls it his strange thing in Isaiah 28. And it even happens to Israel. Israel is going to suffer judgment by the Babylonians and the Assyrians where he uses the means that he chooses. And Habakkuk is wrestling. The whole book of Habakkuk is how can you be righteous and use a wicked people to bring judgment on us? And if you're wrestling with that, read the book of Habakkuk of how can God use a people to do that? Because he's God. He can use a crooked stick. 
and he's metering out his justice and working his ways in ways that we would say are strange, and even he says are strange in Isaiah 28. And so there is, when we get to the, when the suspension is over and God does bring down his judgment, where does hallelujah occur in the New Testament? Where are the hallelujah psalms in the New Testament? Well, it's in Revelation 19. It's the only time that you have hallelujah in the New Testament, and it's four times. It's four times in Revelation 19, 1 to 7. If you want to look in your Bible, I'm going to read the verses 1 to 7, but it's right after Revelation 18 where God has brought down judgment, and in a single hour, in a single day, all of the pomp of this world and all of Babylon is just taken out, and God is bring, brings, brings it all down in a single hour. And the great whore is judged, and you have in contrast to the beast and to this whore, you have the bride, which is, which is the church. That's Revelation 19. And it says, after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude crying out, hallelujah. There it is in the New Testament. Only time. Salvation and glory and honor belong to our God, for his judgments are just, are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We who've lived in a culture and context where mainly things have gone well for us, you know, if we were living in a, in a context where our, our homes had been burned to the ground and our children had been taken away and been raped and we had been taken into captivity and now we're, we're, you know, suffering great persecution. We would pray differently. And this is how God's people prayed of old in the midst of this. And so the hallelujahs that come down is that when you read the book of, of, of Revelation and just look at how the church is to respond... What does the church do in the book of Revelation? Do you see any of the church like taking up arms and like, you know, bringing down wrath? What you see of the church is the church is saying it's a call to endurance, a call to endurance because there's this great suffering that's coming upon the church throughout the book of Revelation. It's a call to endurance, call to endurance. And then, then you see that they love not their lives unto death and they, they believed in the word and the, and the testimony and the blood of the lamb, but they, they, they give up their lives. And then you have the people that, are, that have been killed for the testimony of Jesus, and, and they're praying, Lord, when are you going to avenge your blood? When are you going to avenge this? And they're crying out for justice. That's Revelation 6. And so there isn't like this glorious, you know, military conquest. I mean, you, you do see there is a point where all the that God comes with all of his people, and, that, and we just sang about the lamb with his fair army, doth on Mount Zion stand, and what happens when they, they don't do any battle. It says God just breathes on, God shows up and 
poof, he just breathes fire and boom, all the enemies are destroyed. There's never any battle that's going to take place because God does all the fighting. God's the one who fights our battles. And so it's, it's a difference. So when you take verses 6 to 9, you know, the difficulty is, okay, we pray in precatory psalms for God to bring justice, but here in verse 6 to 9, it looks like God's people are bringing the justice. <laughs> but when we get to the New Testament, we never see the church doing that. The church never responds in physical ways. It always responds in spiritual ways. But there are New Testament, you know, if you get to the New Testament, you say, well, there's never any curses in the New Testament. Well, think about just a couple of these. And, and it's all in response to the gospel. And when the gospel is rejected or when the gospel is added to or taken away from, Paul would say things like, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel than the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say to, again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed. Or the end of 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Like, is that really in the Bible? Yes, it is. Jesus had lots of hard woes at the end of, Matthew 23 is seven woes that Jesus gives to the scribes and the Pharisees. But his last woe to them at the, at the end of the chapter, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets. You decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, he, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, these things will come upon this generation." I mean, Jesus is pronouncing a curse on these Pharisees in their rejection of him. Same thing to, to Judas. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so there are, if you just say, well, it's only the Old Testament where there's hard teaching, where there's curses, they're in the New Testament too, but they're spiritual. They're not physical where these people are being physically slaughtered, but they're, they're even greater of this. There is an answering. There's a reckoning to our God. And if we have rejected Christ, his son, who he has installed on his throne, we know from the very beginning of the Psalms that the wicked are not going to stand in the last day. They're not going to stand in the assembly of the righteous, right? We get that in Psalm 1 and then Psalm 2. They're trying to get rid of the Christ and God is laughing because he's installed his king on his holy hill and he's warning everybody, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And so it's a great reminder that God plays for keeps and he's installed his son and we're to follow him. But the clear testament to the new, in the New Testament regarding ethics of how we are to treat our enemies is this. You've heard it said, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, Matthew 5. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The clear practice of the New Testament towards our enemies is to bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12. When Elizabeth Elliot chose to stay and minister to the Alka Indians after they had speared to death her husband, Jim Elliot, she was overcoming evil with good. The example of the New Testament is clear from Jesus and Stephen. When Jesus is dying on the cross and when Stephen was being stoned to death, neither of them prayed in precatory psalms. <clears throat> Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. We see that later Saul, who became Paul, repented for his part in the death of Stephen. And the centurion <clears throat> is right there at the cross. Here's this prayer of Jesus and he later, he, he declares this was truly the Son of God. So how then should we pray? How then should we live as the church? I would say this. We're to pray for our enemies. We're to pray for justice. I would say the imprecatory psalms are the prayer language of the righteous who are actually hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The very word righteousness is also the same exact word for justice. So they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, also hungering and thirsting for justice. And so we pray against the violent, unjust predators and perpetrators who prowl and pounce upon the innocent and the godly and those who are disadvantaged. <clears throat> we did this for years when the leading late-term late abortionist in the country was killing uh, babies that would be fully, they'd be fine in the NICU and uh, third trimester babies were being aborted in Germantown and, and we would pray <clears throat> in precatory prayers. We would pray for justice, but not vengeance. You see, we would pray for, uh, these, for the wickedness of the wicked to come to an end. We would pray for these perpetrators to be caught. We would pray for justice to be served. And I think now as, as we think about situation just in our world, how do you pray for Vladimir Putin? I mean, this is how Scotty Smith in his article on the Gospel Coalition prays for him. And I think it's important because if you think about what's happening in Ukraine, right? And we're always worried about what? The nuclear option. I mean, if he, if he loses so bad at any point, he can just say, all right, well, we're just going to nuke him. And if Putin decides to nuke Ukraine which he has the power to do, and he's, who knows, could do. If he did that, what do you think would happen? Like, I'm sure you've probably started to think this through, like the domino effect. We're at war, folks. It's World War III if that happens. Like, we're not that far from that because narcissists never lose. Narcissists never lose. They reinterpret history, they reinterpret facts, or they use might makes right and they will change things and they will use nuclear options. And if the nuclear option gets used, well then countries don't have an option. So we need to be praying against Vladimir Putin is my point. This, this psalm is pretty relevant and precatory prayers are relevant because we're not that far from a nuke button. 
And so we, we, we need to be praying. This is how Scotty Smith wrote in the Gospel Coalition article, How to Pray Against an Evil Ruler. He says, witnessing the atrocities, bar- barbarism, and savagery in Ukraine, including the Russian bombing of a maternity ward and hospital, here's my prayer. Father, as you did this with evil King Nebuchadnezzar, take away Putin's power and authority, drive him far away, plant his face so low on the earth he eats grass like an ox and is drenched with dew. Put an end to his evil making against your image bearers in Jesus' church in Ukraine and Russia. Father, either bring him to yourself, put him down, or take him out. You are sovereign over all kingdoms. You alone are God. You alone are worthy of our adoration, affection, and allegiance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We need that. Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, he talks about this child who was trying to understand these imprecatory psalms. And his son said to the father, Father, do you think it's right for a good man to pray for the destruction of his enemies like that? And, and the, the father paused a moment to know how to shape the reply so as to fully meet and satisfy the child. And he said, my son, if an assassin should enter this house by night and murder your mother and then escape, and the sheriff and citizens were in all-out pursuit trying to catch him, would you not pray to God that they might succeed and arrest him and that they might be brought to justice? Oh, yes, said he, but I'd never thought about it. I never saw it before. I did not know that was the meaning of these psalms. Yes, said I, my son, these men whom David praised were bloody men, men of falsehood and crime, enemies to the peace of society, seeking his own life, and unless they were arrested and their wicked devices defeated, many innocent persons must suffer. And so we must pray for justice. Now, just a couple last things in conclusion as we come to the table. I think we need to keep in mind the tendency of the church and ourselves is to be like Peter and to pull out a a sword and to chop off Caius's, you know, or Malchus's ear, right? That's That's our fleshly response. But we sing about, lead on, O King Eternal, And the second verse is, for it's not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but by deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And so I would say to us, just as a reminder, that this text is not a text to say, okay, we should should never, uh, even though the church isn't to do this, I'm not speaking about the state. The role of the state is different. Okay, so if you're called here and you serve in the military today and you, you know, you're fighting for your country, good for you. I am not saying you should not do that. If you serve in the military, that's a worthy calling. What does repentance look like for a soldier? Well, John the Baptist told us exactly what it should look like. In, in Luke 3.14, the soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Did John the Baptist say, quit the military? Did he say, you know, you should have nothing to do with that? No, he just says, don't, don't use your position to extort others, to take advantage of others, and be content with your wages. So the, church, the, the, the state does have the power of the sword. The church does not. Our sword is different. It's the sword of the spirit. But let's not... So, so that's one thing to make a distinction. The other is to recognize, yes, this church has been, this text has been used to take up the sword physically, and that's wrong. But at the same time, there's others that have turned around and said, well, this passage is devilish and diabolical. 
Like, I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of my all-time favorite heroes. He's terrible on the imprecatory psalms. Wouldn't recommend him. I mean, he says that these psalms are devilish and not the oracles of God. Um, he says they're devilish and diabolical. Disagree. Okay? Haley's Bible Handbook says, In Old Testament times, God in measure for expedience sake accommodated himself to men's ideas. In New Testament times, God began to deal with men according to his own ideas. Oh, nice. You've just undermined the whole authority of Scripture. And, and if you start to decide for yourself what is Scripture and what is not, and this can't be Scripture and this is and this isn't, who is now the ultimate authority? You are, because you just put yourself over the Word. And so we know from Scripture that David says about these Psalms that the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His Word was on my tongue, Second Samuel 23, 2. So this is the Word of God. And so let's not make any, any uh, radical thinking of, of saying, well, we just dismiss this passage. We have to understand it in light of the whole of Scripture. We don't just look at Scripture now and say, what did it mean then? We look at the whole fullness of Scripture. And when we see that, what we see is the last point is what's the context for us? You know, we read this so quickly, we think, yeah, we're the people of God. And we forget where we've come from. And what the writer of, of Paul says in, in, in uh, Ephesians 2 is we're the enemies. We were enemies. We were far off. We were without God. We were aliens. We were, we were way far away from God. And worse than that, I mean, we were, we were objects of his wrath following the flesh, following the prince of the power of the air. We were the people that deserved fully to be metered out the justice of God because we, Bible says, he loved us when we were enemies. He died for us when we were enemies. And so the way to start with this passage is to recognize when you think about your enemies, you need to first start with, I was an enemy of God. And God changed my heart. And I can come to this table now as his friend, as family. And what's so amazing about that, I don't deserve anything. I was an enemy. So how we treat our enemies is, first of all, to remember, how does God treat us as his people? And God is patient and patient and patient. Someday he will bring about his justice. But he's waiting and longing for the fullness of his people to come to himself. Would you come to him this morning? Let's pray. Lord, help us to remember who we are and where we've come from. We who deserved the pit. And thank you that our Lord Jesus went into the pit for us and suffered fully the wrath of God on a cross. Thank you, Lord. We thank you that we can come to the table with joy, peace, and hope in believing. Meet us here now at your table, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.